And then the role model effect. I mean, girls being Kamala Harris for Halloween, like get your Kamala Harris costume because it is coming. You know, that is going to be no doubt the number one Halloween costume of like little feminists everywhere. I'm going to put my two-year-old, though she'll be three. I'm going to put her in a Kamala Harris costume like already. That is just it. Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. One of my earliest guests on the show was Erin Velarde, who founded and runs Vote Run Lead, a women's candidate training program. Erin is back to talk about what's new at Vote Run Lead, including a project they call Run 51, which is aiming to ensure that every state legislature is led by 51% or more women and ready to build the democracy we deserve. I like what they're up to, and my company Graphicacy work with them to visualize where each of the states currently stands in progress to that goal and how long they are projected to take. So after a quick word from our sponsor, my interview with Aaron Velarde of Vote Run Lead. This episode is brought to you by Graphicacy. Graphicacy is an analytic design firm that can help you advance the mission of your organization using your own real data and information. They are 21st century visual communicators who create interactive graphics, motion graphics, and data visualizations. You can find Graphicacy at graphicacy.com. That is G-R-A-P-H-I-C-A-C-Y.com. With Graphicacy's help, you can visualize a better world. Aaron, uh, would you mind introducing yourself? Give me a quick biography, even though you're a return visitor. I'm Aaron Velarde. I'm the founder of Vote Run Lead, where we train women to run for office and win. And we are working nationally across the country to get women into every office, but are newly focused on the state legislatures. And we're targeting some key states that we'll talk about today. Since we last talked, what's changed at Vote Run Lead? We've grown tremendously. We are keeping up with the demand of women who are raising their hand to run for office. We're also really meeting the demands of a pretty unique political climate with uh, COVID-19 and you know, trying to be nimble enough to make sure women have the skills and tools to continue to run in this you know, sort of heightened virtual and now hybrid model of how we are organizing and doing outreach. I think the third way that things have changed is we've put a clearer stake in the ground about who it is that we are interested in getting into political office around women who are, you know, feminist in their leadership, who are anti-racist actively, and who are democracy reformers, who are pro-democracy advocates. Uh, I never thought I'd have to say that, uh, that third piece. Um, (laughs) But we've got to make sure that folks know that we believe in, in gender equity and racial justice. You know, we believe that we're in a continual sort of journey on the promise of our democracy. You know, those three things we've become more explicit about and had to be more clear about, I think. When you, you know, used to walk into a vote run lead training, you sort of knew that by, you know, who was in the room, who was in the front of the room, who was, you know, doing the organizing. And then when you move to a digital footprint, um, some of that sort of 
human connection and some of the signals that you would have received. We found ourselves following the death of George Floyd in a position where we just felt we had to be very clear about who we were um, in this community. We were really fortunate, my firm Graphicacy, to actually work with you guys this time. Tell me a little bit about what the project was that we worked together on and what's the campaign that you're on there. Sure. So just, just last Saturday, we launched Run 51. And Run 51 is a campaign to get our state legislatures to be 51% female. We're 51% of the population. We want a reflective democracy. You know who we're you know, targeting. I just shared that. And then, you know, but one of the other things I had been long thinking about is how some of the research on women in politics is sort of feeling kind of stale. It wasn't sort of keeping up with the way that we needed to tell our story. Uh, I think when you see a handful of women, when you see prominent women, when you see, you know, alums like, you know, Ilhan Omar or Cori Bush or national prominent women on stage, women of color on stage, you think, oh, we've we've gotten there, right? We saw this, a de- you know, two decades ago when a handful of women got into Congress. It was like, look, there's a red suit, you know, there's a lady sitting on that on that side of the aisle. And so when you see just a handful of women, you think it's accomplished. And we needed another way to demonstrate that, you know, while there were tremendous gains, especially in 2018 and our state legislatures for women, that there was still a really long way to go. And so I had been following Graphicacy and that work um, that you all had been doing and just felt like you were the right partner to help us visually show how each of the 50 states have their own journey, right? West Virginia, it's going to take 314 years for them to have a reflective democracy. If they keep the same pace up, yes. Yeah, if they keep the same pace up. So you took that research from the Center for American Women in Politics, which has been, you know, keeping track of the numbers for as as long as I can remember. And we turned it into, you know, together, I think just something that was gave people something to hold on to, to go, oh, okay, Nevada is the only state in the country where we have a majority of women in office. You know, we got a couple of states that are on pace, but if we don't actually put some effort into this, and the map shows that clearly, we're waiting hundreds of years for our neighboring states to catch up, what we think is something that's happening naturally, and it's not. And I have a lot of more ideas for us to work together, so so be prepared. That's That's excellent. We, as a company, get pretty excited about projects like that. There's something about the power of the visual. You can talk all you want about like women should be equally represented, but when you see it starkly on the page, how far behind we are and what the trajectory looks like, it's, you know, that picture's worth a thousand words thing, right? It's absolutely it really makes the case. What kind of reaction have you had from people who maybe have seen what you've put out now? around that. So with the reaction within our community, the sort of women's political community has been like, oh, this is so great because now I can actually, you know, send this to a a donor, a supporter, and it's so much easier to explain. So you're totally on point with the, you know, worth a thousand words, right? It's like, just go look at this and find your state. For our sort of, you know, social community, our activist community, they're like, oh, I didn't realize Vermont would take this long. You know, I didn't realize my state would take this long. You know, looking at places like South Carolina, where there's been like almost no progress, right? If we keep at that pace, you'll never see more than a handful of women in the state Senate, for example. So it it became a tool for people locally to see where their state was and to move the conversation from the national women's kind of, you know, like I said, seeing a sprinkling of women here and there doing amazing things to going, oh, we still need a movement around gender equity in politics, um, and so that became, it became a really easy tool for folks to sort of share something on Twitter and go, 
oh my gosh, come on, North Carolina, we've got a longer way to go. I thought we were further ahead than we are. And for us, it's been a great tool to share with our networks and especially our supporters, our donors, to really make it easy for them to see that while there has been this wave of women's leadership in in our political uh, landscape, it's like if we don't keep this up, and even if we keep this up at this pace, right, which is sort of this miraculous pace in the last two election cycles, we have to keep up this pace, right, to get where we need to go. And the last two election cycles have been sort of an unheard of groundswell of women in politics that we've really only seen close to like the early 90s, right? So when we had the year of the women with Emily's list early on, yeah, uh, when they started getting more, a few senators in the. That's right. Yeah. And it would net, it was like a handful of women percentage wise. It was like 500% growth. (laughs) Aaron's what's different about states that are closer to 50, 50 or like Nevada than states that are really far off. What's different in the political culture or the amount of money that's going to female candidates or the recruiting? Do you see patterns there? So we, we did look at that, you know, in some places like Washington state, Colorado, Nevada, you know, these are in some ways frontier states. Some of the women I think would tell you, you know, there is some of that sort of pioneer frontier, you know, woman in their blood. There's always been, um, you know, a different kind of uh, equality, a different kind of allyship, if you will. So there's a little bit of that culture, I think, as you you see some of those states out in the West and Southwest. What you also find is a place like Colorado, a place like Washington State that are near uh, near 50%. You have several organizations on the ground. I mean, I've been working in Colorado since 2004. You know, um, you have a network of people like Emerge. There's a partisan resource to go from nonpartisan to partisan resources when people declare. There's a lot of love-love between the organizations, right? There isn't that kind of friction that I think you see maybe with um, some national groups coming in. There is um, a bunch of women that have decided things are going to be different. So, you know, again, in Colorado, there's like this group, I think they call themselves like something like the Breakfast Mafia. They meet regularly. They're constantly recruiting. They're constantly co-sponsoring each other's bills. There's a power in numbers that they have recognized. So I think some of it is, is some of this cultural piece. I think some of it is that these legislatures, you know, have seen some success and that success has bred more success. Um, it's, it's bred sort of more of a possibility that it's there. Um, you know, the, the places that are worse in the country are the southern states, right? The southern states really, for I think, some of the kind of traditional reasons that we know to be true. Gender roles are... Gender, right. I would say more ingrained sexism in the system, for sure, in the political systems and the parties. And then in the northeast, I think it's just things have always been done this way. Right. In the Northeast and these some of these Democratic strongholds like a Michigan or a New York where you're like, oh, OK, 25 percent. You know, we've been here for a while. Um, Pennsylvania has actually gone backwards. There's a big culture of like we have we're good. We have women in our leadership roles. You know, and there's maybe one woman that's in seven leadership roles. Right. <laughs> so they count her seven times. Um, so I do think you find some of the cultural differences across the country tied to some of the environmental factors about political openness, party openness to women. What has it meant to have a vice president elected who's female? You know, Nathaniel, on some days it seems so normal. It's awesome. Like it seems so unremarkable sometimes that it's strange for me to even say that out loud. You know, I thought I would cry when I saw her inaugurated and I was just like, fucking finally. Like (laughs) I was less. Because we should have had a 
female president already, right? Right. But, like I feel, yeah. um, but to, to consistently see her, to consistently, consistently see a black woman, you know, a woman of color, you know, when she was at West Point uh, doing the graduation speech, I thought that was really huge. Thinking about the places that women have never been before and that she's just constantly stepping, stepping up really beautifully into those roles that Biden and, and Harris seem to be partners you know, her, her portfolio is his portfolio. I think that's really unique. Once she was selected as VP, I said she would be the most transformative vice president in American history. And and that is happening not only because she's the first woman of color in this position, um, but also because of the times that we're in. This is a, not just a chapter turning, but almost like a new book. Um, and Biden's closing an, an old book and she's about to open a new book. And then the role model effect. I mean, girls, being Kamala Harris for Halloween, like get your Kamala Harris costume because it is coming. You know, that is going to be no doubt the number one Halloween costume of like little feminists everywhere. I'm going to put my two-year-old, though she'll be three. I'm going to put her in a Kamala Harris costume like already. That is just it. So there's really that powerful effect of seeing someone who looks like you, you know, who doesn't have this elite Ivy League background, right? Who's like, it's just really palpable. It feels really um, doable. It feels really normal. And it's great. We have a midterm election coming up, which is, you know, a threat and an opportunity both, I think, to the mission that you have. What do you think is going to happen? What are you working for? Well, what we're working for is, is around Run 51, right? We uh, we have three state organizers on the ground. Uh, New York, Georgia, and Minnesota are our target states. Um, these are places that we've long been. Uh, they have roughly the same low 30s. Um, they mirror the national average. Uh, they have you know, different, as I said, political and cultural climates, deep blue, deep red, uh, Minnesota reflects in this very purple um, legislature. We have women who we've helped to get into those legislatures. So we know we've got a support system. And we're essentially in the next two election cycles, 2022-2024, hoping to create a playbook to see what tactics, tools, experiments, organizing it's going to take to move from the low 30s to 51% in two election cycles and, and hopefully be able to share that playbook and after the 22 election and after the 24 election to say, you know, here's what we're learning about how to accelerate the number of women in your legislature. And ideally, they, this may be tools for other political bodies, right? Like how do we get to 51% mayors? You know, I think for 2022, we, you're going to see a lot of targeting of Democratic women in the state legislature. You're going to see a lot of uh, women v. women races, I think, at the state legislative level. Um, you saw a surge in the number of Republican women and center-right women that were running. You saw that paired up um, against other women. I don't expect that to go away. You know, this is the sort of sexist side of me, but I would love to see a woman v. woman race all, you know, all across the country. <laughs> so I'm not adverse to that on a, at a sort of meta level. That'll be something that, you know, be interesting. I would also like vote run leads contribution to be, how do we get more women running for the legislatures in some of these rural communities, these rural state house seats, these rural state senate seats that have never seen a woman even run for them and that have had for the last 25 years, the same man sitting in that seat, you know, and then when it happens, it'll probably be his son who runs next, right? Like, in some of these rural communities, we have yet to sort of see even just political change and around gender and uh, racially diverse candidates. Well, I mean, the, the biggest barrier, the world has changed a lot since 30 years ago or 40 years ago for female candidates has changed a lot. But the biggest barrier probably is still incumbency, incumbent males, like you sort of referenced 
you know, one thing that's coming up that's going to disrupt that is redistricting because sometimes your new districts have new candidates become open seats. Is there a way to specifically take advantage of that? Or is that just sort of, you know, just another element in freeing up some opportunities? Is that something you factor in? Yeah, absolutely. A few things here. One, this speaks to sort of the systemic reforms that need to happen, right? So the sort of third pillar of VRL is um, really, we're going to be digging into some research on how democratic reforms can create a more open environment, a better ecosystem for, you know, more diverse candidates, more non-traditional candidates, whether that be women, folks of color, young people who have not, you know, how do we lower that incumbency entrenchment? On the systemic side, I think we're big fans of ranked choice voting. I think ranked choice voting in a primary system, as you especially see more crowded primaries, um, is actually going to give you the candidate that one, is a better chance in the general election, and two, everybody is happy with on the sort of base side, right? Everybody is pleasantly you know, happy with, maybe not, maybe not thrilled, right? But everybody can get behind that candidate as you move towards a general election. Um, so we have long been um, advocates for ranked choice voting, uh, and there's clear proof that in the you know twenty some odd cities that use it, nearly half of the folks that are elected to both the mayor and the um, you know municipal level seats are women in ranked choice voting cities. So we know it yields a different kind of uh, environment for women, a successful environment for women to run in. But you've you you know we got to run against these guys one time. We got to shake it up because I think retirements are coming. We're seeing retirements happening. Um, I think the Me Too wave helped a lot of men think maybe this isn't for me in my old ways. Right? You look around the political world and you see more young people running against incumbents. That's why I love being a nonpartisan organization. I don't you know I'm like go for it. Right? I, I have no. We don't have that kind of allegiance to the party that says, hold your leadership back so that the party can have this, you know, half-ass vote. It's like, you want to, you think you can do a better job than that guy? You've got to primary them. That's how this works. And then you've got, you might have to run twice. There's sort of an honesty at Vote Run Lee that you are going to change the dynamic of the race. You're going to change the policies that get talked about. You are going to engage new voters in this process. You know, you're going to wake up a sleeping electorate, but you might not win. And you might have to run a second time in order to do that. Um, so we see folks, I'm thinking of a woman out in Long Island who's running for Congress for the second time. She's a world of difference between that first time campaign and second time campaign. She's going to win, right? For all the reasons that I said, a growing electorate, people are excited about her. She's got different kind of chops. And I think she'll be the new Congresswoman. It sounds like this Run 51 is your kind of flagship program. Tell me more about what you'll be doing, how it will equip women to run? What's the nitty gritty of Run 51? So you'll see a slew of new trainings and curriculum. That's, you know, that's the bread and butter of Vote Run Lead is we create really nimble um, of the moment curriculum for women that, you know, meets the political climate of the day. So there'll be a whole slew of um, sort of how-tos um, and training programs, both in person and online, that'll start rolling out this summer and into the fall and, you know, uh, matching up up timing for running and declaring and filing. We're also going to start a campaign manager school for the first time, you know, really specifically looking at campaign managers for state legislative candidates. We'll be starting a C4 uh, in hopes of... Will those be only female campaign managers or... Yes, sir. I mean, you know, anybody can take the curriculum online. You know, you can use our tools. We've got a lot of dudes use the tools. We love it. Good resource is a good resource. Um, And I do want male campaign managers to use those resources because we do find a disconnect, I think, between some of these 
you know, very progressive young men that want to run campaigns, but just don't understand, you know, the caregiving responsibilities of women and how to schedule that, right, in a really tactical way. So, yes, we want them to use it, but this will be uh, women and an emphasis on women of color campaign managers, because so many women of color candidates ask me for women of color campaign managers. And it's um, we've got to grow that pool because the talented folks are there. Um, we're offering coaching sessions. Uh, that'll actually start rolling out. Um, right now you sign up, you get 10 weeks of tips on how to ready yourself for the state legislature, how to dig in, what does your legislature do? What's your why? Like all the stuff that is our, um, foundational training. And then in the three States where we have an organizer, uh, where we have a state director, you are going to see us go from district to district and share that we need women to step up in these places. Um, and that we're going to support you on a you know, th- C3 capacity to, make sure that you are sort of fully ready to declare. And then on the C4 side, the goal is to then pair you up with a campaign manager. When the way that gets to the win part of and win. And then more research. Like we've got to change the national dialogue because this, for me, this is where the fight is. Like Congress, it's great. It's, you know, but if you say the name like Joe Manchin in the last two weeks, then you should probably run for your state legislature. Because one, you have enough energy to follow like that deep level of, you know, political discourse. And two, you recognize that stuff is not getting done. So if you want to get it done, you the state ledge is a place to do it. I've talked to a number of people who were focused on state legislatures. Clearly, there's a lot of power there. Also, the extra campaign effort and dollars make more of a difference, I think. But what occasioned you to change your focus down there as much as you seem to have? Uh, a couple of years ago, we got invited to apply to something called the Audacious Project, it used to be the TED Prize. And it basically said, you know, what what would be your big idea? I was really trying to think about how we move the needle, right? Like Trump was this phenomenon, I think, that really created a sense of anger and awareness and, uh, oh, my God, I could do that. And I have to do that feeling among women in America to, to kind of pop their heads up and go, oh, the political leadership landscape is, you know, not in the good places I thought it was. <laughs> but how do you sustain that? And how do you take that moment in history and use that wind to move away from incremental change, three percentage points, 10 percentage points, five percentage points, to really dramatic, dramatic change where we see a reflective democracy? And so I had identified two offices, the school boards, which are at about 42 percent women, and then the legislatures, which for me at, you know, 7,853, it feels like a very doable number, right? So just as sort of a political strategist, the state legislature is an achievable goal. We can do this in 10 years, right? Um, and so I got really excited about the possibility of, of achieving it, right? And then two, the case for the state legislatures is easy. Like we see more women get into the state legislatures, they get more done, they pass more bills, the budgets get done on time, the function of government happens better. Uh, when you see more women of color get into the state legislatures, more constituents reach out to them, even if they don't live in their districts. We've known that women at this level have a have a role model effect in their communities, um, increased voter turnout. It's a farm team for more women in Congress. And then boom, we're hit with you know hundreds of voter suppression laws in the last year rollback of abortion always happens at the state legislative level. So there's a policy case to be made here. Um, But I think at a larger level, I really felt like it was achievable. Um, And I've been doing this work for nearly 20 years. And, you know, I want to retire going, we did it. Right. Um, That that's really, 
it's a little bit selfish, I guess. <laughs> well, if that's selfish, we want that kind of selfishness. Selfishness focused on other people. You've watched all these women campaign and then I assume govern afterwards. What's different for a woman still running for office and, and being an elected? You know, these state capitals, even in the halls of Congress, right? The sexism is still very real. The nitpicking and sort of, you know, you want to call it microaggressions, whatever you want to call it, right? The climate, I think, also for women of color, that gentleman that sort of spoke terribly uh, to AOC, even Marjorie Taylor Greene, how she treats her colleagues, right? Um, she's doing it. She's targeting women of color. There is that extra layer of bullshit, right, that they have to deal with when they're governing. But I just had a nice conversation at the launch of Run 51 with um, State Senator Patricia Torres Ray, who's a who's an old old G. She's been in the legislature a long time in Minnesota, first Latina in the state Senate. Now there's only two. But nonetheless, you know, she she gets constituent outreach and, you know, emails from Latinos all across the state that are not in her district. Right. Um, and so there's that added layer of having to represent in a different way than I think some of her uh, white male colleagues have to. But on top of that, they're still more effective. They're creating a different set of policy initiatives that need to get talked about. Often it's around women and families. Um, but as we know, women and family legislation actually benefits everyone. It could be around women's economic agenda. But as we know, when you pay women more, you know, <laughs> local economies thrive. They do end up adding a different uh, set of policy initiatives to what is being debated. I think at a congressional level, one of my favorite folks right now is watching Cori Bush. She just isn't having it because this is the way it's always been done. They're sort of refusing to say, oh, it's always been done this way. Okay, let me fit that mold. Instead, they're truly questioning, why has it always been done this way? I don't have to do it this way. And let me give you this other way in which I'm going to either frame this or do the business of politics. And that's really exciting. It's an off year and people are kind of a little exhausted politically from the 2020 Trump election. But why is it important to stay engaged and who and how can people be engaged at this time? I do think folks want to rest. And I also think the news coming at them is telling them they can't because there is, you know, these voter suppression laws that are coming at us. Some of these Supreme Court cases that often roll up at the you know beginning of summer that although we've made this progress, it is still glaringly obvious that it is not enough. I think there is fatigue and so we have to make choices about where we put our energy because the, the sort of like the sky is falling with ousting Trump was an of the moment, like needed strategy, you know, but I've been telling women, especially coming out of the pandemic, think of us all as like, you know, super athletes that at the end of the championship game, like we've won, but we've been doing it with like a, you know, a torn hamstring and we're like still playing amazing. But as soon as the buzzer, you know, for that final minute hits, we collapse to the ground. When the sort of win has happened, you have to go and take time for yourself. And part of coming back into the political landscape, I think, is about being radically focused on your own community, uh, being radically focused on your state legislature is what I would, of course, ask folks to do. But take a look at your city. Take a look at your mayorship. You know, some of these mayors in the recent Politico article are tapped out, especially some of these women of color mayors. So, you know, is there a support system um, for your local city council person who you know is super strained coming out of uh, the pandemic. Are retirements happening in your community? Um, and you want to make sure that somebody who's like-minded stays in that seat. For me, it feels like 
we have to be taking care of our immediate community. That, of course, is your congressional district. I know that's your city council, but I'm, I'm asking folks to really look closely at their state legislature as part of that. And also, like, you got to raise money now. You got to build your political capital now, you know, if you want to run all the stuff that your, your listeners know. We talked at the beginning of this interview about this sort of graphic portrayal of the deficit we have in female representation in state legislatures. Where can people go to learn more about that? Where can they see that online? Where else can they read more about this issue and get involved? Of course, head over to voterunlead.org and just scroll down a, a hair and you'll see um, the beautiful graphic that the, your team at Graphicacy put together. Click on your state. Uh, click on the surrounding states around you to see the, the culture not of just your, of your state, but of the region. Uh, and you're, I think you'll see some interesting data about how, as you move across the country, the numbers change. There's great research from the National Women's Law Center that came out in 2020 about women's political representation and legislative achievements. Um, and that's over at nwlc.org. And that is literally the facts about how women are passing more bills and what kind of legislation they're passing when they get into the legislature. And so those are, you know, two places. And then I want you to sign up for Run 51. I want you to nominate somebody who you think would make a great state representative, state assembly member. And you can do that over at VoteRunley.org on the Run 51 page. Um, and, you know, start digging around. Start figuring out who your, um, who your representative is, who your state senator is. How long have they been there? Are they doing the work or are they collecting a check? Right? <laughs> those, those are questions to start asking yourself if you're thinking about a potential run. Aaron, what did I fail to ask you about Run 51 or Vote Run Lead or yourself that you'd like to answer? We're still not funding women in the same way. If you are going to give money outside your district, you know, sometimes it pains me about how much money went to Jamie Harrison. Like, love, love him. I thought there was a shot there, right? When you start to look at some of the other women congressional candidates, women senatorial candidates, when you compare what, um, how successful women are in our, these state assembly races and that the, you know, 25 to 50% less money than they're getting, you know, if you're thinking about your political donations next year, it's like almost, you almost have an obligation to pick a woman because <laughs> we're more transformative, we're getting more done and we're doing it with less resources. Definitely consider if, if you're sending money outside of state, uh, do it for do it for a female candidate. Well, thank you very much for showing up again and talking to me about this important thing that you're doing. Anything else you want to say? Please nominate a woman or consider yourself for the state ledge. We need you. Thanks. That was Erin Velarde. She's at VoteRunLead.org. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found.